have to say that is the biggest welcome I have ever experienced at the Edinburgh Book Festival. <laughs> so, so congratulations. And well, should we quit now? <laughs> I'm, I have to say, on, I'm Sheena MacDonald, and on behalf of uh, the Edinburgh International Book Festival organisers, I have to thank you very much for coming and to explain that because we, for the next hour, do not intend to flash at you. They've asked if you could not flash at us. You can use your cameras, but no flashes, please. And to ask you to welcome the actor, Freeman of the City of Edinburgh, writer, and as you all know, today, birthday boy, Sir Sean Connery. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't quite understand, Sheena. We can flash. But they, they can. <laughs> no? no. Oh, okay. I can't uh, stop you. No, okay. Well, oh. we will come on to nakedness uh, in the course of talking about this book because this is such a rich book and, and uh, full of fantastic illustrations, and there's an awful lot in it. And it would be invidious. And, and, oh, I beg your pardon, I forgot to introduce. <laughs> okay. I've forgotten two things. One, this is the Highland Park event. So thank you very much to Highland Park uh, for sponsoring this. And please welcome the lovely assistant and co writer, Murray Grigger. <laughs> okay. Well, because, because there are two writers, we thought it was invidious to, 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 to do a reading. So we're going to talk about as much uh, of what's in the book as we can before we open it up to your questions. And you've called it Being a Scot, and it's full of so many aspects of, uh, of what Scotland is rich in, architecture, uh, engineering, science, medicine, da, 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 da. What difference has being a Scot made to your life? Well, it's all in the book, really. <laughs> and Murray can explain it better than me. He's older. <laughs> Why did you call it being a Scot? Because, you know, over the years, people have written unauthorized books about you, or they've wanted you to do a kiss and tell book, and you've written this book. Well, it goes back a long way, actually. When we were... Um, preparing a script to make a series of all the material that uh, Murray and myself had acquired. And the further and further we went with it, the more we discovered or realized that it was going to be easier to make Lawrence of Arabia than all the stuff we had accumulated. And so it was then abandoned in terms of that being a television series. With a, I was going to be the messenger coming in and out of all the scenes. And it was really un, unworkable, really. And so we decided then to make the book, make it a book and st instead of a movie. And got all the... Um, and then the problem became that we had actually too much stuff. And then stuff that was coming fast and furious since we finished the book, the realization that, um, well, what I wanted in, in Murray was a book that anybody from five years of age can read it. Well, are there any five-year-olds here? <laughs> <laughs> it is, a, it's, it's a tr honestly, it's a tremendously readable book. I, I was saying to Murray earlier, it, it's a good uh, bedside book, but he said it's too heavy. <laughs> uh, but I, it's, it's, you go back quite a long way, you two, Murray. I mean, Sean was saying uh, you, you decided not to make the, the, the documentary series that you originally thought of, but you did make a film back in 1981. 81, yeah. Yes, um, it was a very uh, effective PR for Edinburgh, Andrew File, who had been in New York as a Daily Express stringer, and he had written very well about Sammy Davis Jr.'s New York. And so when he got the job here to be running in Edinburgh's corporate affairs, whatever, he thought, well, who, who but uh, Sean would be the person, perfect person. Not only that, he knows the street backwards, a place, the, the city backwards. And um, 
he didn't want to appear in it, did you, Sean? But I had to back into the limelight, got two film crews rehearsing the day before, and you work from one to the other. And uh, the best thing he said was, make it visual, make it quirky. And so we hope the book is a little bit more quirky than a normal read. And um, that's been a fantastic advice all the way through, I think. Let's talk about what's in it. You go back to the 1930s, and you talk about growing up in Fountain Bridge. And you say, when I was young, I didn't know that I lacked anything because I had nothing to compare it with. There's a freedom in that. I had a hard-working mother and father, and I still think about them both a great deal. And you use the word exciting. Were you happy then? Well, I thought I was. Uh, I, I, I can jump forward to when I was in the Navy. I thought I was enjoying it as well. And I came out with ulcers. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's difficult to get to the source of what you people can explain things much easier, I think, than I can. I was excited about going to school, excited about going to the Navy. Uh, I think school was a better choice. Uh, it's, it's just how you find it. You know. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of passion in the book. I mean, uh, you talk about your, your love of horses, which you developed at a very early age. Oh, yes. And uh, your love of soccer. In fact, you chose a school that favoured soccer over rugby, didn't you? Yes, that's mm. right, yeah, because um, Barra Muir had rugby and no, well, it's soccer now, but it was football then, still football in Scotland, and football was really the great passion of growing up and playing football in the back green, and the back green, in fact, was concrete, and it never seemed to, we never thought, it still was always the back green. And have you maintained that love of football? Oh, yeah. I went away from it for a bit when I was really busy on films. And then I really got back into it when... Um, and I was involved in uh, Celtic. And I remember giving Jock Steen his uh, famous benefit. And uh, then I changed my allegiance later um, with David Murray. Um, I met him when I got the freedom of the city here. And immediately we had uh, chemistry and enjoy each other's company, and he's an amazing chap. And um, we stayed very, very good friends since, and I get spat on if I go to Parkhead. <laughs> well, it is quite surprising because I mean, there's a lot of Edinburgh in this book. You're an Edinburgh yeah. boy, but you support yeah. Rangers. Yes, I know. Even my brother here says I should be supporting Hearts or Hibs. But you see, I think that's partly to do with living here all the time. When you really get outside, you think you get a more objective look, you know. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, my father was a Celtic supporter. That's how it was introduced, and he came, he'd come through from uh, Glasgow. So um, it would be automatic. But the word, you see, supporter, means that you support it day in, day out. You financially, emotionally support it. Well, I've always adored football itself. And that's why, you know, we go back over to explain that and finding that um, we taught the Argentinians, we taught the Brazilians yeah. to play football. And you might have been a professional footballer. Well, yeah, that was uh, when I was about 23, I think. I was in South Pacific and uh, Mark, uh, Matt Busby had Man United then. And uh, I was uh, offered terms to come with them. And uh, Robert Henderson, uh, he's a very good, became a terrific friend to me. For the first time, somebody sat down and really discussed something with me. And it was him saying, well, don't you want to be an actor? And I never seriously considered it. I said, no, I mean, what do you? he said, okay, you go to football, you might last two years, three years. You might not even get in the first team, <laughs> which was probably right, you know. I think it was right. Anyway, um, I decided to check it out with him. And he said, first of all, you have to get rid of that accent. And <laughs> he said, because it's, it's too pronounced. Um, 
And for example, when I went to South Pacific, Millicent Martin thought I was Polish. Really <laughs> true. Anyway, anyway, it's uh, the football's a, a long story, and, and he talked me out of it. And he said, apart from the um, the accent, you'll have to, and you're totally uneducated. So, you, yeah, the only way you will get educated is to see theatre and read good literature, cross-section of stuff like Stanislavski and Life and Art and all the different. And that's why that became my message. I decided, okay, I would try to be an actor. So I got on the, I had a bike, motorbike, and I went to all the different towns. First, the height of the, everybody because they were coming by train. So I, I would get the digs and my basket would arrive with the, the rest of the crew, which had everything I owned in it, a wicker basket. And I would check in and go to the libraries in each town up and down the country. This is my last football question, but uh, it's in the book and I thought it was very interesting. You actually played for the Showbiz 11. <laughs> so you, and there's a photograph in this book, a team photograph of you and uh, the rest of the team, and it includes Des O'Connor. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you say David Frost was in goal. Is yeah. that absolutely true? Yeah. And uh, we had Ronnie Carroll and uh, Glenn Mason and Wally Barnes, who played for Wales and Arsenal. And um, he was the pro. Billy Wright played with us. And we used to get big crowds. It was all for charity. We used to get, jump in the charabang, charabang at the BBC. That was the meeting place. And then we would go north, south, went up to Leeds and Yorkshire, and we had uh, that wonderful Freddie Truman, and uh, I, I don't know anything about cricket, cricket, I don't like it, but he, he, was, he was very interesting and funny, and a, another chap who was a very good cricketer, they were partners, played for uh, the same team, and uh, we had, so up there we had over 30,000 people turning out. There was a time you had to get guys out of the bus, didn't you? You didn't have enough players at one time. Yeah, that's right. We got a place there and realized that nobody had counted who was going to play. <laughs> and uh, so we got uh, the driver and <laughs> somebody else. And then we said, well, who's that? Because Jimmy Henney had made up all the, the names and the program so that you would know who was on. So I call, call him Charlie Tully or something. <laughs> Let's get on to acting, since you decided not to go down the soccer road, to go down the acting road. And uh, Canada was important for a while. Can you tell us about your experience there? Well, that was um, because, in fact, I, <clears throat> I was lying in bed and I got a call uh, from uh, the director uh, in, in Paul Armand, and uh, from, he was calling from Montreal, I think, and uh, I, had a, I was in bed, I had a bit of a cold, and he just said he w wanted me to play Macbeth. And I found myself saying, oh, terrific, yeah. I said, I, told, I want um, $500 or something, and uh, you get me there, get me back, and um, a nice bathroom. And uh, he said, you've got it all done. So, and, it, and Canadian uh, was stronger than the American dollar then. And it was, yeah, it was nothing, it was no real. But it was the beginning of uh, the, first, the first Shakespearean part, really. And it, it was quite a pill, actually, to learn what to do it in 10 days with Zoe Caldwell. And, but it was a very, very good experience. In fact, I used to get up at 5 in the morning, have a shower, and shout in the shower where I was going, what I was doing. And then, uh, I think it's in the book where I was going to rehearsals at six in the morning and talking to myself in the street. And I, the cop pulled me over and said, because <laughs> I had the beginning of a beard and all that, didn't look. And I was obviously doing things. The cop like I said, just a minute. He said, uh, who are you? And I said, uh, oh, why? Uh, Sean Connery? He said, yeah, but what are you doing here? I said, I'm an actor. And he said, 
what are you doing here? I said, I'm doing Macbeth. He said, you're doing Macbeth now? I said, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. And then, then it was okay. And he said, oh, okay, right. And as I, I don't know if it's in the book yet, but I went into this cafe for, uh, and then bumped into Len D'Agostini, who was from Leith here, and another fella. I can't remember who the other one was. And they were having breakfast. And I was having a bacon and eggs and coffee. And, and I said, hi, Len. He said, hi. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm doing Macbeth. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Finished his breakfast and walked. <laughs> I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about? He was the same about? weightlifting, the Dunedin Club, wasn't he? He was a weightlifter too. He came later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the beginning of your North American experience, I suppose. And you've worked with a lot of uh, film directors. You've made over 80 films over the years. You were particularly keen on John Houston. Why? Well, he was um, kind of unique in the sense that he wasn't intrusive, but was very, very smart and, and had a marvellous sense of pictures, you know, positions with cameras, revealing stuff. And it's like everybody, not all his pictures, but the experience that I had with him, um, with Michael Kane, was uh, really tremendous because we, we juggled the parts because I had to alter. He wanted to change a scene that I was doing to give it to Michael and, revise, and vice versa. And um, it was, it's, it's kind of funny that it didn't show the balance or anything. And then he said, no, you see, because Peachy and Danny are really one person. It's a 22-page short story by Kipling. And that was a terrific clue because of the, of the paradox of each one and how when they put them all together, they were quite a, an amazing team, quite a, a good relationship because there was a complete person there. The other had their sh shortcomings. Well, you came from the right city to do to do that kind of work because uh, this is the city of Jekyll and Hyde. Well, I know it's London, but it was really uh, uh, written here. You made the Bowler and the Bunnet, which is oh, about yeah. the, the the division, the social division that runs like a golden thread through this book, yeah. and in, and indeed through the country. Um, do you think it still does? Do you think we're still the country of the bowler and the bunnet? Well, um, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, I think that um, it's still too easy um, to define. You can see the differences. But um, I'm not living in it, so it, and it doesn't really affect me. But um, I'm sure if you chatted to a few of the people, you would, um, you would be able we to. We don't have many bowlers nor bunnets now. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think the industry has, been, has collapsed, hasn't it? Um, and that was a moment, um, following, curiously enough, a, a movie called Seabirds of the Great Ships, which was a great piano praise yeah. for the Clyde. And uh, Cliff Handy worked on that, and uh, Sean and he worked together very carefully and made these great polar opposites, you know, the land of uh, John Knox and Johnny Walker and, you know, love of life, hatred of life. I thought it was very powerful. And, uh, but it, was, it rose without trace here, didn't it? Mm -hmm. the, the press didn't mention it. But it yeah. got you a job in, um, in Moscow with the, on the Red Tent. <laughs> yeah. For your, your unique proletarian uh, qualities instead of your imperialist James Bond tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. We'll have but to talk it's about true. it. But it's true. The whole uh, business, when I went up there, uh, Ian Stewart, um, I met at the golf club, and we became very good friends. And he was doing this experiment and uh, to make the to try to erase this bowler in the bonnet situation because it was red Clyde side, quite rightly, because the people that were working um, did not have the right conditions or anything. And it was always a fight, it was them and us. So he was attempting to move that or erase it if it was possible. So, so I went up and did a month there, then directed it and, and wrote with uh, Cl Cl Cliff Hanley. Cliff, yeah. And uh, that was a very interesting experience for me because then I was I stayed good friends with Ian all his life, and so I, it, it, it had a, it was an interesting book. 
The payoff is in the book, actually. Yes, you'll have to buy the book. <laughs> now, you, you've just used um, that four-letter word, so let's talk about golf. Oh, that one. Yes. <laughs> There's a very surprising uh, sentence in your book that I wrote down because I was so surprised to read it, and of course I now can't find it. But it's along the lines of, I didn't really have any hankering for golf, and then it pretty well took over your life. What happened? Uh, well, the chances of me playing golf um, in Edinburgh and that, it wasn't new. interesting. It was like cricket for me. I didn't have any, I couldn't see anything about it. And then it was only when I had to do it for the movie, um, just before that, and Glenn Mason and Ronnie Carroll and a few of us used to try and hit the ball. And then I had to do it for Goldfinger. And so I had to have some lessons, put it down in the ball and make it look like you had a swing instead of a toilet door. You know? <laughs> and uh, I got caught, really caught by it. And uh, I have to say that it's been one of the most important things in my life. I think it should be in all the schools. It should be taught, but taught correctly what it's about because it's, it's about a code of conduct and you call shots against yourself. And in all the sports now, there's a lot of ducking and diving, especially diving in soccer. But in the golf, I remember a perfect example in the early days with um, Australian uh, player, I can't remember his name now, and he was, I was walking around and he was up on hill and it looked like he took a practice swing and then he played the shot, it was a par five, and I thought he put it near, got a putt, it was a birdie. And the kid didn't change the, the number on the board. So I said to him, he had, a, he had a birdie there, you haven't changed it. And he said, no, he had a five. <coughs> I said, how did, how did a five? No, he had a four. He said, no, he had a, a five. He said, he told me. He missed the ball, did a whiff, went right under the ball. Was a, <coughs> missed it, called it on himself. Occasionally it happens in tennis, with, it used to be the Swedes. They were the best at saying, no, it was in. So an opponent's ball, yeah, it was in. And in Morocco, golf became a Cupid for you in oh. 1970. Yes, yes. And you talk about that in the book. I don't usually ask personal questions, but since you talk about it, can you well, tell us what happened? Well, the cause of it all is here. <laughs> it's very small, but boy. I have to watch what I'm saying because she beats me up. <laughs> I know, um, I arrived in Morocco with uh, um, Stanley Baker and uh, Ronnie Carroll and we're all, we're all playing in a golf tournament. And they gave us a terrific welcome in that country. And uh, we went out to um, play, and uh, I played rather well. In fact, at the end of the four days or whatever, I won the men's tournament. And this bird I met had won the women's tournament. And, but before we got to the end of the tournament, we got together in a different fashion. Enough. <laughs> Although the word naked does appear with reference to golf. You say you like Lynx golf because it's naked. What do you mean? Well, it's um, the, just the difference between, there's two fundamentals. The one is the, the Lynx being on the ocean and therefore they don't have many, if any, trees, high trees. And inland courses have all the trees, even at Loch Lomond. They have trees and you've got, they can get alignment on targets. The difference on the, in the links, like St Andrews and Troon and that, is that you don't have any real guide. And the, the, so the wind and the terrain, the bump and run or whatever, you don't, you learn many more, um, it's quite pragmatic, but very Scottish idea that it's the, the simplest way to get there is the best. And if you want to have a 
terrific drive, be ready to pick up the consequence, which is usually a gorse bush or a bunker that you can only play backwards out of, which is a hazard, and it is a hazard. Some of the golf courses inland are, you can take a wood to get out of them in America. But they've had now had to change and redesign the lengths different because of the equipment. There's another four-letter word I'll have to um, refer to before we open it to the audience. This is the image that lots of people know you for because of Bond. Mm. You don't talk very much about James Bond uh, in the book, although didn't he go to fetters like you? Well, <laughs> yeah. I was delivering the milk. <laughs> That's true. Even Tony Blair went to fetters. It just proves there are failures there. <laughs> <coughs> interesting word that is used in the book which is bondage did you find did you enjoy being James Bond as opposed to I mean last night I saw The Hill which is a, a, a fantastic film and you're that very rare bird you're an international superstar who is known all over the world and you're also a good actor which is very unusual how did you enjoy doing Bond well, at the very beginning, of course, the first time was with Terence Young, who had promised that um, I'd done a movie with him, Action of a Tiger, with Martine Carroll and Van Johnson. And he said, I'll get a, I've got a film, I'm getting a film or something, and um, I want you to be in it. I said, well, okay. He said, it'd be better than this. Well, okay. And it certainly was, because the Action of the Tiger was a toilet. Anyway, uh, it, did, it wasn't my fault. It was, no, it wasn't a particularly good film. And the first one who would agree was Terence. But anyway, the, when it came along, uh, Dr. No, it wasn't Dr. No. In fact, the first script they gave me was Thunderball. Um, and then some litigation started, and we were working on the script of Thunderball. And it was very interesting for me because Terence brought me into the the writing and everything from the beginning, so it stayed with me. But anyway, the lawsuit came up and Kevin McClory won against Ian Fleming in the court of London, against all odds, because he plagiarized, him and his partner plagiarized from McClory. So they had to switch quickly and they switched to Dr. No, and the budget was a million dollars for the entire movie, which um, was limiting, to say the least. But it, and it was to go to the, uh, Jamaica and film there and film in, in London. And it was really a tremendous experience. And, and, and Terence was, I don't think he really got recognition, recog real sufficient recognition for what he'd started with that. Because it was, it was copied in many other movies afterwards. But you know, he got me see the, the, the tailor and uh, all the gear. And, all that stuff, which is I'm not enamoured of. I prefer to be comfortable, but I, I as my wife says, I dress up well. <laughs> anyway, so she tries to keep me at that. Anyway, the um, Terence was marvellous in the film. Well, it's history. But just before we started, Nixon devalued the dollar, and it was um, nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars to make the picture instead of a million. When you figure what they're getting now, I got some too. Um, it's a big jump. It is, it is. And, but doing, being Bond, and, and you know, survey after survey suggests that you are uh, by far the sexiest Bond, the best Bond, the quintessential Bond, etc., etc., etc. And it enabled you to do, to do some very surprising things. For instance, the Scottish International Education Trust. Uh, yes, well, that was, um, we, before uh, we, talking with Ian Stewart really, I had the idea to make the trust, but so we did a golf tournament at Troon in 1970 to make fun, funds for it, and realized that uh, although it was a huge success, uh, Christy O'Connor won it, and we got a thousand pounds a hole from the sponsors, and it was 
it didn't ha have enough money, so I d decided to go back and do another bond because he had asked me, and I said no. And I said, well, I'll do it, but I want it to go to this trust. No agent, no income tax. And that was the deal. Wow. <laughs> I'll open it up in a sec. There's just one. I mean, there's, there's such a rich book, and we've really skimmed the surface. But can I pull this quote out from uh, the Freedom of Edinburgh? You really get to grips with streets in winter when your horse slips back on the ice. How do you know? Well, I had it at the Dean Village, and when it was icy, and you have to shove the horse's ass up the hill. <laughs> you know, the, the Dean Village, the brace. Unbelievable. And the, the well, I took it, an American who was here uh, from that show 60 Minutes, I took him down there and he didn't believe it, uh, what the Dean Village is. It's right out of, I don't think I've taken you there, no. Okay, I'll take <laughs> it. Well, not quite yet, not quite. Yeah. Let's have the lights up, shall we, and where's the roving mics? Yes. That's much better. Right. Oh. Question, uh, lady in the front and the lady up there. Thank you very much. Um, Tommy, um, I, I was asking Alex Salmon the other night when he was speaking. Oh, name this dropper, day. name yes. dropper. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the lack of um, Scottish history in the school's curriculum these days. What's your thoughts about that? You must have been well fed on a diet of. Hume Brown's histories when you were at the Brunsfield School when you were a wee lad? No, the history, uh, I, I can't hear correctly, but you said about I must have been well versed in history yes. at Brunsfield? Yes. Yeah. Well, introduced to it, but it was always about the, the English kings and queens and that kind of history. Well, it's, it's not just me. I mean, which is divine, uh, raised the same thing. And... Uh, all this it's supposed to be great Scottish educations. Well, a lot of it is just English. Sean, I used to stay next door to your grandparents at Dam Head Cottages, Octotool. Is there a part of that in the book? <laughs> oh. Oh. oh, Christ, Octotool. Uh, yeah, that's like uh, La Sodi. I used to go over there at my granny's. We used to go, but um, uh, you came in from Ochtertool today? Yes, yes. <laughs> to see you. Well, thank you very much. That's the second book. <laughs> yes. You're pretty rude in the book about the lack of progress on a Scottish National Centre for Photography. I wondered if you could say something about why you're so passionate about that cause and whether you see any signs that there is progress since the change of government. Well, um, the government at the time was um, Labour. And of course, the building, the Royal High School, which was a marvellous building, um, because they'd chosen to build the uh, Parliament in another place, it uh, became vacant, really, and they had, we have uh, quite a history of uh, photography, and it's m really major now, like painting in the world. And so I went to have a look around, because we came up here for the vote for the referendum, the yes vote, which we got. We were all in that building, it's the first time I think all the political parties were in some kind of agreement, whether it's the basic truth or not. But anyway, it was quite euphoric. And then when the idea of it becoming a photographic centre was, uh, uh, they approached me about it, I immediately said, well, it's a great idea. And so I became patron and the, what's it, um, the two names? Uh, Hill Adamson um, uh, were working right on that site, just beside it. And historically, 
and its position, and for 10 million, it was going to be totally restored. 10 million then. And uh, uh, another, uh, they've had people uh, donating. I won't go into that. We had uh, Sony, the uh, studio company, film company, they were ready to put all sorts of stuff in there to support it. And you would have had exhibitions there for a whole year round, but you could put all sorts of things in the building. And because my reading of it was because it was for home rule, originally that building, which was one of the first reasons why the other one was built, that they wouldn't go, go for it. So it is now, I think, it'll be maybe 20 million, but it still is a tremendous place. It still should be done. Have you got something to add on there? Yes, I mean, uh, I think uh, Edinburgh has been very slow in moving on various things, including this wonderful Sean Connery Theatre, which um, I proposed in the idea about 20 years ago, and I'm called impetuous because it still hasn't been put up yet. But um, that would be a, an excellent uh, project, and. Uh, Richard Murphy cited it in one of the most boring squares in the history of architecture, which is Festival Square, I call Ceausescu Plaza. Um, <laughs> it would be a great uh, reflection of the rotunda, but uh, the rotunda of the Usher Hall has now been, I think they took the wrong scheme. It was a beautiful scheme for the sun. We somehow are always taking, we're going for the bronze medal in life, you know, in Edinburgh. And I think we're very conscious of the fact that... <laughs> Questioner used uh, the word rude which is a strong word, but y you are quite um, unflattering about some developments in Edinburgh. Has Sorry, what was that? Did somebody take a shot at me? <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Just the, the tent speaking. Yeah, well. <laughs> I brought this back onto the toilet. <laughs> For instance, you're not very impressed with historic Scotland. Well, um, Murray's better. Oh, that suddenly gets louder. I don't know why that is, but um, Murray's better uh, equipped to deal with that than I am. But I agree, uh, he's much more in it. We've just heard from him, so let's hear from the floor. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, Murray. I'm very weak on sport, and uh, Sean helped me there. <laughs> we and, saw that. And uh, saw that's that. right. And, uh, and uh, I, I was hoping Sean uh, would articulate all these worries we have because. Uh, never in the history of architecture have we gone back and repeated the past. I mean, as Kenneth Clark said, to do as your fathers did is not to do as your fathers did. But we want to put back a past that is impossible. We're trying to put a kind of uh, hypothetical past. And we're looking at buildings that in the history of architecture, Scotland was so innovative. We had so many innovative architects. And now it seems to be the innovative architecture sat on and the real bland guys get to build. And we're covering our city in junk architecture, which is a tragedy, I think. And uh, the, the most bizarre thing of all is in Stirling Castle, we're reproducing uh, the unicorn tapestries at the wrong scale, in the wrong colors, in the wrong shape, uh, from the cloisters in New York, where these masterpieces of uh, 17th century, 16th century, uh, they're displayed in a building which is constructed. We're constructing tapestries and putting in a building which is real. And I think the irony is so bizarre, you know? Question. Sean, when you uh, received the, the freedom of the city of Edinburgh about 20 years ago, you visited Bruntsfield Primary School, and the teachers asked yeah. the kids if they'd like to ask you questions, and a wee laddie's hand shut up. But instead of asking you about the Bond girls or your Aston Martin, he said, Mr. Connery, could you tell me your average annual income, please? That's absolutely, was it you? <laughs> And uh, you replied, you replied, good question, son, but it's none of your business. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely and my, right. And my question, my question is, why was it a good question if it was none of his business? Well, the interesting thing then I discovered in Edinburgh, well, rather at Brunsfield, was there were, um, there was about 25 in the class, and there were about, five to, or eight Scots. The rest were Greeks, uh, everything, Italians, 
all the and this uh, the all the seats had been moved around, and instead of sitting like we were, which was all the idiots at the front, the smart buggers at the back, <laughs> which is complexing anyway, and uh, it was quite refreshing to, to ask about how much. I'll tell you something else. This is quite dif different. I was uh, in. Uh, now I go. When I went to receive the, the kettle or some bloody thing, in, <laughs> I had to go to America. What was it? Harvard, right? Harvard. <laughs> anyway, I have to. Now you know why I have this wife. She's imaginary. She's a computer. Um, anyway, I went there to receive this. I'll cut it short. And then it's called the Hasty Pudding. And they, you go there and they'd come and drag and dance and a lot of sort of kind of poofy going on. <laughs> and I was, I was asked to make a speech. And I thought, well, I'll, I'm not going to ask these, I'm not going to deliver a speech to the people. They're all these wizards, you know, they're the creme de la creme of everywhere. And there was about, I don't know, thousands of them. So I said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read a speech, give you a speech, but I'm perfectly happy to answer any of your questions. And I'll tell you honestly what the reply is. And the only questions they were interested in, this is Harvard, was getting into the movies and how do you make it big? That's it. I swear to you, I was expecting to be kind of overwhelmed with interesting nothing. But, and, the, and they weren't very pretty. Is that the answer to the question? If you're not very pretty, don't try. Oh, you're getting away with murder. <laughs> question, question. Also, Sean, uh, can I wish you a happy birthday, first of all? And to oh. say, uh, happy birthday. from all of us, a happy birthday. Can I say, have you achieved everything that you want to achieve in life, Sashon? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I've come into a different cycle since I decided not to um, do any more films. Um, and so I do more reading and computer and golf, but um, I find them still more active in some ways. And um, I have a feeling that this something cooking, and I don't know quite what it is yet. So, Sean, um, you worked with uh, Alfred Hitchcock on Marnie, and I would very much like to know what the experience was like working with such an iconic director. The short version. Oh, <coughs> well, it was, it had a, a reputation of being terrible with actors. Well, I found it was a complete reverse. He was a different director from Houston or Sidney Lumet because Hitchcock had been a set designer and uh, worked in the studios in Germany. So he knew all about lighting, he knew about editing and mechanically sound and everything. And very, very bright. Him and his wife was an editor and worked with him worked on the script. He came prepared knowing all his shots because he'd worked out the stories and he rather liked to shock scenic designers by showing people say well that can't be real it's not you know sending it up a bit. I had a marvelous sense of humor and I had the, really the best time working with him and I mean he's he said to me only he sits underneath the camera here and the camera is there watching and then after a, a run as you say cut uh, comes up to me and says you know I don't think the people in Delaware are really interested in your dental work <laughs> I said, well, um, I can't quite he said your mouth is open when you're listening. <laughs> Which is true, I, I mean. 
I didn't realize I was doing it. And then he said, um, the, the next scene I was doing with Tippy, and it was in a pack projection, didn't work, went to go to another studio and do it. And it was quite a long speech. I don't remember where it came in the movie, but anyway, I get in the, the car again. It's not a real car, it's a blue screen that we're driving. And I'm talking about it, I'm talking about it, I'm driving this car, you know. <laughs> Cut comes around and says, I think you should have some dog's feet in your speech. I said, I'm sorry, Hitch, I, I don't understand what, what, what's, he said, pauses. <laughs> it, was, it was a dream, it was a dream. I tell you, that, oh, you want to go on? No, I'm just going to say, I had a terrific time, and then he gave me a watch, and uh, uh, what you know what it is? It's a special. It's a very good watch. What is it? Patek Philippe. Patek Used to play for Rangers. <laughs> and he had, and he, he'd written on the back of it, um, for uh, to Sean from his fellow workers on Marnie. And I was uh, coming back, finished the movie, he'd given it to me, and I was wearing it, of course. And I landed in London, and the customs, but we got through, I had um, D'Angelento and, and the two kids and me, after a flight from LA, which is about 12 hours then. Anyway, and the guys, everything was okay, except the box of toys and things. They made me open everything, the customs. Then the guy said, hello. He said, Let's have a look. is that watch yours? I said, yeah. He said, can I see it? I said, sure. He said, it's a Patek Philippe. I said, oh, yeah, it's a good watch. I said, I've got like, what am I going to wear? A swatch or something. So he turns turns at the back and he sees the, the, the message and he says, you got this from home? I said, it's a film I did called Marnie in Hollywood. Yeah? Well, you'll, you'll have to pay duty on it. And I now I'm knackered by then, I'm tired and I'm fed up with this idiot. So I'm trying to be calm and then I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm not paying they wanted me to pay something like uh, 800 pounds or something daft. I said, it's a gift. I said, look, they went on with the luggage and left me. I said, I'll get another car. And I said, I want to see the supervisor. I said, the supervisor? What for? I said, I want to speak to him. So the supervisor come. And he asked, what's the problem? And I said, this is a gift. And I got it working on this movie. And the th this, the, not the inspector, the other one said, anybody could get anything written on a, a back of it. <laughs> so I said, I said, you think I'd buy a watch like that and have it, and then have it marked up for me? And the inspector said, just, just put it on, son, will you? <laughs> and get out of here. Anyway, it's always your landing. Oh, here we are. Oh, here we are. <laughs> <coughs> Sean, um, the RNIB in Scotland hoped to produce a talking book version of being a Scot for blind and partially sighted people. It's my job to recruit an actor. Would you like to audition? <laughs> what? I didn't hear the question. He wants you to audition to do the reading book. Oh, no, I'm not good at that. <laughs> I can't read and he can't spell. <laughs> the one right up at the back, right up at the back. Hi, many happy returns to you, Sean. Uh, did you catch any of the recent Olympics and the fantastic achievements by Chris Hoy? And do you think that Scotland could be a standalone nation in future Olympics? I can't hear what you said. Did you see 
Chris Hoy winning three gold medals at the Olympics, do you think Scotland could be a standalone nation at the Olympics in the future? Scotland should always be a standalone. Whatever. I believe. Um, I, I, I saw the reruns with him. I didn't see the actual match because it was, I think, rather badly done because only NBC had it and you had to have a special programming where I was to get it. And uh, so I would only catch up for the, when they were showing the highlights. You should have watched the BBC on the internet. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Hiya. Um, Sean, you, you have a, a love of Lynx golf. Have you ever spoken to Mr. Trump about his development? Well, I saw Trump at Tartan Week when we were in New York and uh, he had uh, just made the announcement that it was what he was going to do. And I said, well, I think it's terrific. And then, but I have no idea or had no idea what the local repercussions would be. It just, my first response was, well, if he's, he's going to make what he claims, it, I couldn't see any, anything but benefits, certainly for Scotland for that part, because it's pretty neglected apart from the oil fields. Uh, yes, there's a woman here and there's a man in a red jumper there. Can you see your hand up, red jumper, so that, yeah, thanks. Hi, Sean, I've waited 45 years for this moment, so I want to make sure, oh. <laughs> make sure you see me. And you haven't disappointed, not a bit. But my question is, of all the uh, women that you've had, you've had these beautiful leading ladies, do you have just one that stood out in your mind just a little bit more than the others that you have fonder memories of, perhaps? I didn't understand one. Uh, the question you is, you know that you got the mic halfway down your throat. <laughs> Do you have a, a leading lady that you have fonder memories of than others? Not really, no. <laughs> Is the right answer, I think. <laughs> yes. Mr. Connery, good, good morning to you. Uh, I think it was Steven Spielberg who once said, here I answer. I think it was Steven Spielberg who once, when asked who the, the, the true Hollywood stars were, they said the, the, the term Hollywood star is bandied about you know, needlessly nowadays and there are only five true stars in his opinion and Sean Connery was one of them. Do you have any similar names who you would hold up to be the real stars of Hollywood and the film industry? Thank you. Who do you think are the real stars? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's a bit blurred now because it depends on the deal. And uh, there's no question that Tom Cruise was... Uh, up there. In fact, it was when Spielberg made this statement, he said there were seven, seven names. Uh, I, I suppose it's um, Spielberg, no, not Spielberg, but Tom Cruise, and, uh, but there's new ones come on now. And, and what's great is Robert Downey Jr. is going to be making as much as Cruise soon. Uh, I can't. I don't pay any attention to that, to be honest. I mean, I was more interested in how much I made. <laughs> but no, the, the, the actual status thing is not, is not me. I'm not genuinely interested. I can't answer your question. In fact, to be honest, I never thought about it. Um, you say in the book, you had an attempt with, actually, with uh, the bowler and the bonnet, to influence politicians, and uh, it didn't work. They weren't listening. Any hopes I had of influencing politicians came to nothing. Hmm. That's in the 1960s. Uh, you were much more successful last year when you persuaded the First Minister to stage Black Watch. <laughs> why, why is he listening to you? Well, Alec wasn't in power in 1960. <laughs> he wasn't born. <laughs> 
No, no. That the the, polit the political thing was uh, uh, it was a wide open exercise, and one could see what they were trying to do. And, and you, it's you, you drive through that area governed and down by where all the cranes were, and it used to be such a fantastic industry. And uh, you know they opened up the Clyde itself is a little stream, and they opened it up to make, launch these boats. It's a, it's a great uh, movement in, in the Clyde side. They say it too. Every time the boat was launched, there were always people crying because it was you know something complete and it was going off. I, I was very moved by the whole thing up there and and work and the way that Stuart was trying to get things. I mean, for example, they used to put all the scaffoldings, right, which are hundreds of thousands, and they had them all over the place, lying around. And this 16-year-old apprentice came up with the idea of color coding the size. So when you did the calculation of what you needed there, you would need 27 red, 26 blue, and it was like, wow, nobody had thought of it. There was a room there where there were rivets had been there since the 1418 war, <laughs> and they weren't using rivets, being, you know, all that kind of thing was sad, but interesting for me. They put the same boy, they had these chains, and they used to move them out the way when you, you know, when the sh ship gets launched. And this kid said, well, why don't you keep them on the launch and build the ship above? <laughs> and yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Instead of having to move them to a place, move them somewhere else, that's all labor. There's actually a color coding story from your childhood about during the war, it was uh, during World War II, down on Stewart Terrace along the Gorgie Road, everyone had an allotment. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you tell a very good story about how, well, people oh, pinched God. the vegetables. Yeah. So, but in the war then, I don't know how many here were around in the war. I'm probably the oldest person here. <laughs> I, I think, who's there? Anybody older than me? Yes. yes. <laughs> well done. And it's a woman. Well done. Fifteen months older. Three months. Oh, my God. Oh. Fifteen months older. Fifteen months. Jesus. <laughs> anyway, you've, you've thrown me for a loop here. Oh, yeah. What were we talking about? We were talking about how... Was it your grandfather who saved yeah. the vegetables on the allotment? Yeah, what happened in the war was that um, they had to grow vegetables and... We had all the rationing and all that stuff. And kids, you had a, under five was a green board, and uh, between five and 12 was a, a, a book, and then that was a, a blue book, and then the adults had beige books. And you had to go everywhere with your books to buy anything, sweets, vegetables, or anything. So they tried to make homegrown um, allotments. So they gave them to the people. You know, they didn't have to pay anything for them. And his, uh, my granddad down in uh, Gorgie Road was allotment along towards Sochen Park. And there were about uh, 10 allotments. And some people started to steal some of the vegetables. And so my granddad took a, a whole lot of that different bread and flex wire and put it in the ground, cross where the potatoes were, and down through the lettuce and all that. And got a hold of one of the guys who's the, the you know, the yakla, and says, uh, looks good, good. And the guy said, yeah, but w what is it? He said, anybody touches anything there, it rings in the police. <laughs> and the guy, oh, nobody touched his. things left to do. One is uh, some of you have filled in little forms because Sean signed 20 books and if you pop them in the box as you leave he'll draw them uh, this afternoon so 20 of you are going to get signed copies of this book. 
Uh, also, well, you mentioned the birthday, and the sponsor, Highland Park, <laughs> would like you to remember them. <laughs> so this is your birthday present from the sponsor of this event. But you wow. can get your bagman to carry it for you. Yeah, Thank you very much. And Thank you. I have a final question, which is, uh, and it's, it's actually in the foreword of the book, and I, I thought it was a great little story where you talk about your first big break. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the, the first, uh, I realised after 70 years, so it was eight years ago, that my first big break, when people ask you, was when I was five because I'd learned to read and write. And in fact, I, I did this at the AFI award in the speech because I said if I hadn't been able to do that, I couldn't be here today, which is true. And to be able to read and write today, can you imagine all, I'm sure the jails, the asylums are full of people that can't read and write because how do you get through this modern day without filling in forms or being able to read them. So that for me is the break.